0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm joined by four friends, and we're going to talk about women in rheumatology, the XX factor. All month long, we've been featuring webinars on women in rheumatology on different topics. Uh, And tonight, we're going to have sort of an amalgamation of a lot of these thoughts in what we're calling a town hall meeting. I wanna thank the sponsor of this whole month campaign and these webinars. That would be Bristol Myers Squibb, Be Now, the network of women that is run at BMS for their generous support of this initiative and educational series. I know that you've seen probably a lot of uh, blogs and videos and whatnot. We've got a a therapeutic update series where we've also featured um, 10 videos on why there's a gender difference in different musculoskeletal conditions uh, and drug response states. So I think you'll find that interesting. But tonight, again, it's our town hall meeting. Let's start with our panelists introducing themselves. Dr. Dow.
1: Hi, Catherine Dow. So I've been the senior editor for the Women in Rheumatology campaign. Um, I'm here based in Dallas. And thank you, Jack, for this opportunity to have this town hall and for letting me lead the charge on this.
0: Rachel.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate. I am junior editor for this month's campaign, and I am a clinical rheumatologist in West Palm Beach, Florida.
3: Gwynesta Melton. Hi, I'm Gwynesta Melton. I am a recently retired practice and rheumatologist, have been an advisor for this extraordinary campaign in North Carolina.
0: And Deborah.
4: Hi, I'm Deborah diet and. One of these things just doesn't belong here because I have been invited to this campaign tonight. I spent 30 years in the private practice of rheumatology, and I am now full-time faculty member at Yale in, in the section of rheumatology.
0: Well, Deborah, we're glad to have you join us and sort of keep us on our toes. I do want to first acknowledge the hard work of Catherine, Rachel, and Gwen, who've been Really working tirelessly with the RoomNow staff to put up the content that we have uh, for this last month. I think it's really quite impressive. In this month, they've got they've enlisted 24 different rheumatologists to contribute. We have 12 blogs, 17 videos, four weekly surveys. I think like 28 questions. Um, these four weekly webinars and almost 25 to 30 gems or quotes that appear on the website. It's been a a gargantuan effort that they've led, and I think that the the good thing about Room Now is the content stays up there for a long time uh, and will continue to be promoted and reread and viewed. Uh, Please tell your your friends and colleagues about this effort and about the content that um, is up there. I want to start by, um, this is a town hall, and town hall is you know, a chance for everyone to air out their views. So uh, in the audience, if you've got questions, please um, put your your questions in the Q&A box and we will address those um, throughout this town hall. We're gonna touch on a lot of different areas that really were covered in our last three weeks. But I want to go around the horn and uh, ask, um, Catherine was a moderator, Rachel was a moderator, Gwen was a moderator, Um, And I want each of you to talk about your, just quickly your session and what were some of the big things that happened in your session. Um, And then um, Deborah, I want you to listen to them and, and then offer some critique about what are you not hearing or what's surprising or what, what do you want to focus on? So Catherine, um, oh, actually Rachel started the very first one. Mm -hmm. Rachel, (laughs) tell us your impression.
2: I like Gwen's. mm -hmm. So, um, my moderating was really about balancing career and family obligations, you know, whether that be young children, all the way to aging adults, multi-generational cultural differences, all sorts of things that kind of amalgamate into a person's life and as it reflects in their work. We talked about a number of of things that can contribute to kind of balancing or struggling to balance. and it, it really became clear that this balance is really a struggle. Uh, it's really difficult to find. Women tend to have a harder time finding that. They tend to have less, uh, they don't give themselves self-care, which is something that's really important. And self-care has many faces, chocolate, spirituality, bubble baths, uh, all of these things are important. We talked a little bit about guilt, um, specifically mom guilt, but guilt as it relates to your personal life, taking into account your work experience. We talked about some strategies, including changing clinic hours, um, talking to clinic directors regarding negotiations, things that you can use as tactics. And then of course, being mindful, being adaptive and keeping a close um, knit group of friends and colleagues who are supportive of you, is really important.
0: Yeah, one of the things that really stood out in that, um, in that webinar and discussion and the survey questions were that women bear the brunt of everything. You know, uh, and it's, and you just take on way too much and, uh, and yet you do it um, and most people don't know the scope of what you're doing, but women way more than men have situations where the job gets in the way of life or the converse where life gets in the way of the job, yet you power through it. What I, I, and when you look at, you know, what, what we've come up with this month is an overwhelming dossier on the need for women leadership and women being promoted and being treated fairly. The problem is women are doing too much, so much so, asking them to do more seems almost impossible, and also asking them not to burn out also seems impossible. Kat, what did you do during yours?
1: Well... I wanna go back to um, you know, why we did this to begin with, because I wanted to identify the challenges that women face and empower them with solutions. And I wanted to focus on three main issues: psychosocial support, which Rachel touched on with a career versus um, life. And then we wanna talk about career development, which Gwen headed and moderated beautifully with our lawyer on contracts. And then we also talked about private practice versus academia. And then the third thing that I wanted to touch base on is leadership development. So for me, in my town hall, or my town uh, Tuesday night rheumatology, what we focused on was private practice versus academia, because so many of my fellows have asked me, should I stay in academics? Should I go into private practice? What are the pros and cons? Well, who better to ask than the people who've been there, done that, and who has their experience to be shared. So with my Tuesday night rheumatology, we had four different rheumatologists, two in private practice slash academia, but mainly private practice and two in academics. And basically they shared why they chose their career. They spoke about the hardships that they went through. One was actually an immigrant physician trying to get to the United States with a J-1 visa and establishing her research career. So that's Dr. Danila, amazing woman. We talked about gender inequity. We talked about mentorship, networking, and self-promotion. I mean, it was such an incredibly empowering um, session that I think everybody should watch that Tuesday night rheumatology session.
0: And Gwen,
3: talk about, about your, your focus. And so your so our focus was on contract negotiation. And let's be real. Women have an incredibly poor track record when it comes to negotiation. And part of it has to do with the fact that we want to please. And we are happy to have someone give us a job and think that we can do the job and we will accept whatever contractual agreement they've come up with. Whereas our male colleagues will say, this is a starting point. So what we asked our our wonderful attorney to do was to share with us the important points of a contract and we focused a lot on an employee contract because many of us have to have an employee contract work. What we, the take home message was, absolutely everything in the contract is negotiable. Every single line, every section is negotiable. You must have flexibility with regards to what is gonna be important to you. And it is also imperative that if we are trying to focus on your work-life balance, that you have the ability to be flexible with your schedule and salary may not be the most important thing it is imperative that you get an attorney to review your contract because you do not wish to have to have someone come in and bail you out of a situation that you should not have been in we also focused on the lovely non-restrictive covenant and that is going to be another chapter that we further discuss, because that is going to have some implication with uh, particularly uh, some ground rules that may take place with legislation. So that's going to be something different that we will be having to discuss in the future. I wish for you to look at that podcast so that you can get all of your beautiful pearls, the ones that I'm wearing on my neck, so that you can focus on what is important for you and your employee contract and when you have to renegotiate a contract.
0: I'm glad I did not have to break out my jewelry for this. <laughs> that wasn't known, but um, yeah, I think that um, that was an eye opener. And the the issue on non compete clauses was great because it's it's an evolving story that's going to change, and everyone's got a, a very strong opinion about uh, about that. So it's it's really kind of kind of interesting. Um, initial comments from you, Deborah, listening to some of this. What do you think?
4: So uh, you know, I. Uh, have a, I guess a word to say about about each one. And um, for Rachel, I think that uh, it, it's very interesting topics. And I think that in the struggle to balance, the key thing, one of the key things that women or people need are some flexibility. I think it's exceedingly important for uh, especially young, young people to find their own path and be at peace with it. So don't let other people try to define your path for you or to criticize your path, find where you want to be and then be at peace with it. The, um, and I think you said something very, very key, don't try to take everything on. And I also think we need institutional changes. When I was a medical student at Yale, I was on the Dean's Committee on the Status of Women. At that time, it was an ad hoc committee, I think, and, and now it's developed into a whole office. But there was a, a young faculty member by the name of Phyllis Bodell, who d- died tragically at age 44, but did a lot of work on endogenous, what were then called endogenous pyrogens. But the one of the, she did many key things while she was at Yale. But one of the things she did was, Expand opportunities for women in medicine by changing the path, changing the time requirements, making making mm-hmm. part time work to be as respected as full time work. So, so, those are some of the thoughts I had while you were speaking, um, Catherine. The um, you you made me think a lot about my own path because I started in I was a I was a fellow with Steve Malawista who I know Jack Kush knew. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I was going into academic medicine. In fact, I had a Robert Wood Johnson Faculty Development Grant as a fellow. And then I I abruptly decided that I did not want to do that. I wanted to be in private practice. So I I went to a staff model HMO for seven years, and then I opened a private practice, which I ran for many many decades. And. Now- <laughs> Now I'm back in academic medicine, a different sort of academic medicine than I started in, because I'm a clinician, and I started out as a basic researcher. So I just, it just took me back in time. And um, the, uh, and I think that, that women need more exposure and more mentorship as they try to make these decisions. And a lot of fellows at the large academic institutions don't get exposed to private practice and what that means and what it entails, and but they end up in it anyway. And then for, for Gwen, you also took me down memory lane because when I went for that very first job at, when I left fellowship, I, they offered me something and I accepted it. Didn't even occur to me to negotiate it. And I've learned a lot since then when I negotiated the sale of my practice and moving into back into academics, it was a 20-month negotiation because the most important thing that you said is everything is negotiable. And I think that as as we negotiate contracts, we have to make decisions about what's important to us. And then, you know, what can you trade? where your lines are, what lines can't be crossed. Those are very, very important. And it's that's just not a matter for women. I think that's a matter as more and more think- people are not in private practices. more and more people are in large practices and, and large institutions, contract negotiation becomes critical.
0: So I think the greatest um, co- negotiation line I heard is actually the title of Rachel's video that she's doing or just did Rachel do you want to tell everybody what the title of that video is
2: okay I'm learning this but no is a complete sentence <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and ironically it was on the desk I it stuck with me it was on the desk of a judge that I know and I thought wow that's influential if someone in that area also needs a reminder that no is a complete sentence.
0: I heard that on a podcast this week with Fran Lebowitz the famous uh. artist and whatnot. So yeah, that's a really good one. I want to start by, um, you know, total disclosure. During this month, Catherine has uh, badmouthed me as um, uh, a miserly employer. I hired her twice and underpaid her. Basically, it was shickles and tacos was uh, her salary. But in return, she had flexibility in her job. Um, uh, I've heard and read this week, this year about, um, this month about, um, we don't have enough women on the programs that we're doing. And that is a crime. And there's a great uh, blog by Nicola Dalbeth where she turned down authorship in a major, major publication because there weren't enough men, I'm sorry, there were only men on the editorial board of this major book. And she said, when you, you know, find it right, you know, to rightly represent all of us, then you can include me in in your effort. And they clearly needed her. I reviewed the the last four years of Room Now Live, the meeting that I run, and I did the math. How many women are on the faculty at Room Now Live? I'm ashamed to say it's um, 24 to 38 percent. And the question is, um how did you four women let me get away with all of this?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, a better is question a- is also, what are you going to do about it now that you are aware?
4: But so can I ask you a question?
2: Is is as
4: medical schools become 50 to 60 percent female, do you think that will naturally change? Or do you think that that um you'll still be not hiring? No. <laughs> not, not-
0: well, I've I've only hired women, so I wrote a, a blog about why yes, I hire women, and yes. and, and yes. Um, so I'm proud of that. But um, I think I think when it comes to like the leadership stuff, you know, leading, being first author in a, in a major clinical trial, being um, you know the chairman of a committee, being um, uh, on the faculty. The problem is a lot of these, you know. Um, men beget more men on programs and on committees and on uh, leadership positions because these are the people I shoot cool with and run with. And I know, and there's more of them. Um, There are women that are interested in gout and lupus and rheumatoid and spondylitis. And, you know, so there's no excuse that I not have more women on the programs. I can tell you it's hard. It's easier for me to do a hit list on, all right, we're gonna do a spondyloarthritis symposia. I need these three topics covered. I can think of four people for almost every lecture um, and three of them are always gonna be men. And maybe only one is going to be a woman. Um, But maybe this means I have to work hard. One, I have to work harder as a meeting organizer to find more talent. And that's one of the biggest problems we have in everything that all of us are doing is where is the next generation of talent? And it is going to change. Um, The gender um, dominance is going to evolve, Um, but there's gonna be a long, it's basically, it's like uh, Malcolm Gladwell's the dynamics of change and the tipping point. It takes forever for gender equity in representation at leadership positions and studies and research and publications and lecturing, it's gonna take a, a longer time than it needs to. I, and the catalyst for change needs to be as you said, Deborah, but I wanna hear what you guys wanna do. Because I, again, I'm saying I'm guilty. How
3: are you going to change me? So I'm, I'm gonna uh, step on your toes right now and make you cry. Um, when you say I can come up with four uh, guys right away, I go to my list and I can come up with four women immediately. And the reality is is that the women haven't been asked because the guys keep asking their friends. So when we started talking about who to put on this panel, who to ask for the blogs, I had names uh, for every section and it has to do with the fact that I am, my friends are women, and I am making sure that I have leader, women that are leaders, women that I know that are excelling in uh, various areas of rheumatology. And so I was able to come up with names um, quickly. So, and it's who, we, who, 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 we're, who we're friends with, um, and that's the reason why the Association of Women exists and we've been promoting and trying to help forward uh, the women so that we actually can use the ladies that we know and the network that we know. And then we're trying to introduce those women to you and any of the other advisory boards um, that are speaking bureaus, etc., that you want for educational programs uh, so we can share. So, so two I, points. I would, I would say it's, I'll, yeah.
0: I'll, it's, it's not nepotism, number one, because when you hire people for these positions, it really usually isn't friends. I would say, yeah, third, 40, maybe 50% are people I know well. But usually I am going after the people who wrote the papers, the people who are on the committees, the people who write the chapters. And again, that's the same self-fulfilling problem, right? Yes, so, and those it those women need to get in there. And it's beyond, this is not friendship. This is business. And this yes. is good business. Deborah, so, go ahead. I was
4: just going to say- two quick things, no maybe a complete sentence, but Gwen doesn't hear that. And the, the the second thing is that the same thing that Gwen was talking about also applies to race and ethnicity. Yes. So that people, people tend to call on people who are like them, who look like them, that they socialize with. So I think that it does it extends beyond gender.
1: It's about sponsorship, too. You know, it's like there's
4: so much like in my
1: my Tuesday night rheumatology, we talked about, yeah, women being mentored to death, but none of them sponsor them. And we have to be promoting this.
0: Explain the difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mentoring is I'm going to give you advice on what you should do. But sponsorship is. I have this great person, you need to hire this person, you need to approach them. So this is like promoting them and elevating them to be in the front so that people can see them highlight their, their strength. It's not just about talking to just that one person, but it's about talking to other people to give that person exposure. Now, Jack, you are probably one of my biggest sponsors, to be honest with you. Yes, he's a you are the sponsor. one who got me in front yes. of lecturing a lot, um, got me involved in a lot of committees at the ACR, got me involved in a lot of things. So, I mean, kudos to you. I wish there yes. are more men who are like that,
2: um, yes. and I wish that there but were more people. I would say that are like that.
3: He was. He's a great sponsor. But that's
2: also a trait that not everyone has. So honing in on mentorship and sponsorship, we can't wait for natural selection. We've got to make, we've got to create the environment for people to be able to want to do that and to do that. And I think the way that we do that is through campaigns like this. Awareness is key. We have to start with awareness and then we can build up to how do we create change? That's what tonight's about.
0: You know, I saw an interesting quote today and it applies to us as rheumatologists. And the quote is something, it says basically we cannot succeed, meaning rheumatology, rheumatologists cannot succeed when half of us are held back. Oh, love it. The idea is, and and that is true. You know, I mean, it's not enough that you be a, a woman in rheumatology You've got to, as a woman in rheumatology, um, you know, promote and um, advocate for other women in rheumatology. Mm-hmm. So that you are the authors, you are the leaders, you are the speakers, you are on the committees. You know, and and, and again, this—if we—if you—if you don't pay attention to it now, the future depends on what you do today. That's Gandhi's quote, you know, um, and. There has to be a sense of urgency. Yeah, and the Carious. question, you know, that's what this campaign and this month has been about. That's why we're going to continue to promote this. But I think the question again still is: uh, I want to get hard about what can we do other than uh, I could tell you an example. Uh, we send out flyers about Room Now Live. Like, look for our meeting. Register for our meeting here's two good speakers and the flyers go out with two or three pictures on it. And we got roasted in social media because we sent out a flyer that had three men, you know, and they were like, where's the women? Of course there were women on the program. And, but to be fair, and I think they were accurate in pointing out that it was only 26% of the program. Um, But you know, that makes me, the organizer, and Artie Kavanaugh, the organizer, really uncomfortable. And that makes, that's our impetus to work at this harder the next time. And when I don't have a woman to give that spondylized lecture, I am calling uh, Dr. Melton, and maybe she can give me suggestions. But unless, you know, the feet are held to the fire, (laughs) you know, at the organizational level and at the institutional level, these kind of changes are not going to happen. And then, and then when it does happen, you, you as women in rheumatology need to heed the call.
2: So
1: he- that's true. there's, there's actually, do you know the AAMC on their website, they actually have toolkits, toolkits to mm-hmm. number one, how to promote yourself, toolkits on how to become a leader, toolkits on how to write grants. And that's something that is being thought of by multiple different American colleges. And so one of the things that I have noticed during this whole campaign, I was looking at the American College of Cardiology, they have a whole committee on women in cardiology, the American um, Academy of Pediatrics, they have women in pediatrics, they have full committees. I mean, right now, we're depending on, um, you know, aware Association of Women in Rheumatology to do the lead, but I think the ACR needs to step up and have a committee on this too, where we would have toolkits, where we would have seminars for women, networking opportunities, coaching. I I just think that the national associations, state and society associations need to go ahead and step up.
0: So Catherine, you seeing the slide that you made from the AAMC?
1: Yes, I did make that, yes, absolutely.
0: So again, you know, women in academia, the numbers, this is a sort of reflecting what's going on in um in medical school. It's it's in the 40 to 50 percent range as as entering classes. But it, as as Dr. DeSeer says, it's gonna go over six, over 50, if not hit 60 in the next 10 to 20 years. But if you look at the faculty level and the higher appointments, it's now we're not at 40-50. We're now at 18, 20, 37, you know, for department chairs, deans and whatnot. And then it's even worse. If you look at women of color in leadership positions, it's less than 5%. Now, and, and then the, what's the women in specialties number? There's another AMC, that there are certain specialties that are female dominant, um, family medicine, psychiatry, pediatrics, rheumatology, uh, it should be actually in this group, but ma- there are male dominant ones. And And, you know, this is a very hard thing if women are trying to actually break into something like neurosurgery or emergency medicine and whatnot. Again, these are the things that have to, that all of us need to be aware of um, in having these discussions.
2: But it's so much more than just who's doing what and what specialty. I mean, women are also facing a gender pay gap. So even though all, all across the board, physician compensation went down 2.4% last year, there's still a difference between 28 and 26% um, in that pay gap, which can lead to almost $100,000 a year. Susan Chenoy, who's an amazing pediatric rheumatologist out of Washington, and I were just talking about this. I mean, that is a huge difference potentially for women, which may be hindering them from making some of these choices, making the decision to step up. We have to have transparency with that as well. It's it's not enough to sit in the corner and say, oh, there's a pay gap.
0: You know, pay is a hard thing. It's like Gwen was saying earlier, you know, advocating for yourself is hard for any of us, maybe even harder for women. But if you don't, who will? Your mother's not in the room negotiating your salary with you. But if she was, she'd be (laughs) slapping someone in the head. And she'd she'd be asking that chairman, well, what do you make? Of course, he would say, well, I'm the chairman. You know, (laughs) that's an inappropriate question. What did you make when you were taking the position my daughter is taking? And then he'd have to defend that. You know, obviously you have to go into these situations with knowledge and you can find out what rheumatologists are made by the city, you know, and then by it's really not a hard thing. So there's no reason that shouldn't happen. The the hardest problem, how should women handle the issue of they may not be full-time?
3: Right. So I was looking at the specialties that are listed. And a lot of those specialties are friendly for a work-life balance if the woman is taking charge of the family. My husband's a nephrologist, recently retired. He did nephrology. I wouldn't dream of doing it because of the demands that were going to be asked of me as the head of our household, our domestic household. I could do it with rheumatology, immunology, but I would never want to do the challenges of nephrology. We tried as a married couple to do internal medicine um, for two or three years together. And we thought there will be no procreation in this family if we keep trying to both do internal medicine. So we decided to do different specialties. And some of the specialties are being done by women based on their also dual desire to have a family and some of the specialties that you listed were, were quite demanding. Now, I gotta be honest, that radiology, I, I could see us doing that. I can see us that actually trying trying to do that, but the problem uh, may be that the co- competition for it, there may not be the, the right amount of sponsorship for women to do to radiology. I don't know, it's, it's, it's a little complicated, uh, but, but some of those not- is being chosen.
1: There's also like, you know, the time when women are trying to have children and start a family. I mean, that's about the same time as when, you know, you're trying to establish yourself in your academic career or your career. So the two aren't necessarily compatible. And so a lot of times women will take a back step and just allow other people to pass them by. That's that's what I think is happening. So that way they can take care of their family. And then once their kids are grown, that's when women are kind of like entering back into the workforce full with full effort. So what do you think about that?
4: I think there's one other um, issue or pitfall. Somebody mentioned part-time work. And mm-hmm. I actually I did that for a while, but um, especially when I opened the, my own practice, mm-hmm. I could choose to go to, there was nobody else telling me, you've got to come here and make money for the. So I could choose to go on the Bronx Zoo school trip because that was my choice. And when I hired other women, I made sure they had a similar choice. But I think especially in academia, academia women should be, have to be very careful because sometimes being part-time means being paid part-time, but the work wow. is, left, and that is a trap that is to be avoided. Yes. You
0: know, um, we're going to go. Let's, uh, Shannon. Why don't you bring up slide two? Um, and this is a slide of the survey that we did just, just today and yesterday. We only got eighty-three respondents, um, uh, and we're going to get more. But this is usually enough of a sample to give you a picture. The first question we asked is, "What is your pri- What is a priority for you as a rheumatologist in choosing your job?" And everyone, whether you're a male or female, I just show you the conglomerate here because it was almost no difference between men and women. Uh, two-thirds want work-life balance and and then slight differences between men and women when it comes to um, either career uh, opportunity um, and advancement and also flexibility those are slightly different between men and women this particular survey uh, was unlike other surveys was dominated by women answering a survey over two-thirds uh, in the past it was like like almost 50 50. So we ask them, what job are you seeking in the future? And you can see the differences between men and women. Um, the, the pie charts don't look the same. And if you look at the table underneath, they'll say more women are looking for part-time positions than men. Mm-hmm. But still a surprising number of men, 38% are looking forward to a part-time position. Um, more men therefore ha- are, are interested in full-time positions. But when it comes to seeking leadership positions, I find it interesting that um, that women are actually more likely to be seeking leadership positions. Gwen, do you find this surprising?
3: Yeah, I did find that surprising. And when I when I saw it, saw it, the first thing I wanted to and we and I know you didn't stratify it is what was the age spread because if we have older men maybe wanting to transition and slow down and that and that may be their reason and rationale for wanting to do part-time, and with that, they may not be that interested in doing leadership, whereas the women, there may be, the, whatever the age is, may be at the age where it's the children are been launched and they're ready to start looking for leadership. And that's the first thing I thought was, I wonder what the age spread is.
0: Yeah, and, and it's likely, uh, we didn't ask for age on this, um, it's likely that the men are going to be in that 60-year-old and above bracket. And most of the, you know, the tsunami of white-haired retiring room male rheumatologists. And then, um, and the women are likely to be in the, an average age more like in the mid-40s rather than, you know, so there, obviously there's different, different things here. Um, I guess we should go right into this, the, the, the next slide, which has to do with leadership. Um, and the question is, um, you know, why are there not more women of prominence and in leadership roles, is it because they're not given the opportunity, or because um, they're they're overburdened with, um, you know, with running families uh, and running the lives and being the CEO of everything except for the company that they work for? So um, when we ask people what you know, what get tell us something where you've assumed a re- leadership role, or the best thing where you've assumed the leadership role. And, and actually men and women equally, about a third of them said, well, I don't really have a something I can point to. But of the other options we gave them, men were more likely to be pointing to that they were currently a chair or a director or a leader of an organization or a practice. Women, half as likely. Um, men and women equally are on committees and um, um and were officers and that sort of thing or they've been on rheum- rheumatology advisory boards women were more likely actually to be uh, first author on a paper um, i found this a little bit surprising and it, this could be a sampling bias on, on this particular but i think that this answer confirms what there are, are we've put up on the website a lot this month that women are less likely to assume leadership roles or not assume but be offered leadership roles. That's really important. Um, Next, uh, there we go. If you were given the opportunity to assume a leadership position, would you take it yes in green, um, uh, I mean in in magenta um, or no in green or possibly if they made concessions or if it was to my liking? Men and women were equal here as far as how they answered. I thought that was surprising right? But maybe the next one isn't surprising. Here's the other leadership question. What are the barriers to your seeking leadership? Both men and women, it's a large Mm -hmm. blue slice Mm -hmm. of the pie. It's Mm -hmm. it's 70 to 76% say it's the burdensome time demands that make it hard for me to be involved in leadership. But men, the only other things, there was like only two other things. and, And that was no opportunity in 19%, and four or five percent that pointed to a gender bias. They have very few other reasons. On the other hand, it's the kaleidoscope of options with women that the other 30% have a quite a mixture of other reasons why, um, uh, including a you know maybe the largest one, 11% saying that there is a clear gender bias that they've experienced, right? But daycare mm-hmm. work, no opportunities, no mentoring. You know, these are all factors that that um, that they'll all deal with. So, where should we be headed when it comes to leadership?
2: I just want to point out one thing about roles and when people go for roles, there is a tendency for women or for most women to feel like they have to fit 100% of the criteria. When they are actually going for a leadership position or a role, they may not put their hat in if they don't feel like they meet that criteria, but men generally, if they meet 60% of the overall mm-hmm. criteria for a position, they're more than likely to put their hat in for the role if it's a role they want. So I think we also need to be aware of um, our own bias and when it comes toward to that kind of um, almost an amplification of of situations for people. That's an important piece that we didn't capture in these types of questions.
0: Right. I mean, you'd have to ask a lot of questions of a lot of people to really hone down. We can turn the slide off now, um, Shannon. So um, where are we with leadership? I I think what I've seen this month as an observer to all that you guys have done um, is that there's a lot of need. um, There's certainly a need for leadership. Uh, There's a need for opportunity, but the vast majority of of women in rheumatology uh, aren't seeking um, leadership because they've got too much on their plate. How do we make this front of mind priority um, in, in, in moving the discipline forward? Again, when half of us have no voice, how good can rheumatology really be?
1: Yeah, you have to have have opportunity. You have to have opportunity and you also have to give women equal pay, just kind of like what we had talked about, because, you know, some of us have to support our families. Um, There are several comments in the Q&A where it's like there are some women who are single parents, you know, and trying to juggle jobs, trying to find um, support. That's definitely very difficult for people who are in single parent households. So not only do you provide opportunity, but you have to provide them just compensation to make it worth their while.
2: And for single parents, a workplace that has daycare as an opportunity may really be a lifesaver for families. It's it's kind of the combination.
0: Should there be at the practice, um, hospital, institution, societal level, should there be? The equivalent to the Rooney Rule in football, where you've got to, uh, if you're going to have a leading position as a general manager or coach or assistant coach, you have to interview um, a uh, a minority candidate, not just another, you know, 50 year old white guy um, for the position, uh, and then after you've interviewed them, a, a, and whenever they're true, they, they instituted that rule. and There's a lot of argument in the NFL as to whether it has really had any effect. The fact is that when they didn't have the Rooney rule, there were almost no African-American coaches. Now mm-hmm. there are many African-American coaches and Hispanic coaches as well. Uh, and they're still the minority, but you can point to many of them. But do you need to have quotas? Do you need to... Push on, you know, a medical conference needs to be 50-50. Um, our next, you know, our last four presidents were, were males. Let's make the, the, the next one a female. You know, should we be forcing that or should we be demanding? How do we make that happen? Deborah, what do you think? The hard one. I
4: think it is a hard one because I think if you have something like, sports analogies don't really help me, but I'm going to go with the, I would say, believing what you say about this Rooney rule thing, but <laughs> it doesn't necessarily make any difference because you're just interviewing the person because you have to. And, and I'm not sure that that's what led to more African-American coaches in, in, in the NFL. The, so I think that, do I think that if you've had four male presidents of the ACR, you must have a female one? Absolutely not. I think that um, I'm not sure what that would necessarily achieve. I think you need to look at why you've only had four male presidents of the, and, and this has not been the case with the ACR. So don't no, no. one misunderstand let's just say with the medical a medical society i think you should look at how you're choosing your presidents that you're only ending up with a certain type when there are many qualified people of um of uh, almost any demographic so i think rather than requiring that okay we've had four now if you've had four women in a row must you have a man the I I think that you should look at the needs of the society at a given time and see who's stepping forward, willing and able to serve. And, you know, I I do think that time constraints of of being in leadership are keeping a lot of people who would be wonderful leaders out. Because if you are a young woman with young children trying to make your footprint in academia, you don't have any, you don't have a... In academics, you don't have, you're not going to have time to be, uh, you know, the head of a committee in,
3: uh, the but NCAA. I
0: think in, in, in coming up with those committees and coming up with leadership, you have to be like all the women on this call and, and also like me in that you have to be fearless. You have to be yes. outspoken, you know, the quote that we have up this week, this month, I guess, uh, Well-behaved women seldom make history. You have (laughs) to be unafraid,
4: unafraid
0: to say the thing that needs to be said.
4: You also have to have time and a certain amount of control over your own professional life that a lot of women, lot of people building a career, don't have. So when I was a young volunteer for the ACR, I could take time away from my practice. There was no one to tell me that you couldn't do it. Can't do that. The only thing that told me I couldn't do that was the economics of it, and I was in a position and willing to do, you know, to because I loved the ACR and I was passionate about the things I was volunteering for. I was willing to make that sacrifice. But if you've got a section chief or a department chair saying, "What do you mean you're going to, uh, you know, you're going off to uh, work on these these guidelines and it's, it's going to require X amount of your time?" So I think that part of it is having institutional support in, in uh, what you're doing and hoping that it fits in to and having the institution value different choices that people make. Because right now a lot of a lot of academic institutions value a couple of things and they need to expand.
2: Well, and I just also want to point out, we talk a lot about young women, but women, as one of our um, attendees noted, also tend to be caregivers for older parents and older family members. So that it, it may not be this the steady transition of oh, my kids are out of the house, I'm I'm good. It, there is a lot of um, a lot to consider, as you said, Doctor Desir.
4: And somebody said somebody mentioned on site daycare. On site infant toddler care is wonderful. Took I took advantage of it. But to the to the the mothers of young young, little guys, let me tell you, when they're teenagers,
2: they need more of your time. So got to be watched. (laughs) Got to be watched. (laughs) Dr. Dow told me that. And Kat, I'm sure you're right. I'll tell you when I get there.
1: I think we need to impose a quota for Room Now Live where Jack has to ask at least 50 percent women.
2: (laughs) I think he will now.
1: He will, you
3: will. But
2: being fearless also in, in something you said, Jack, you are very good about promoting the people around you. And I mean, mm-hmm. I've benefited from that. Kat's benefited from that. that. Is- we have a lot of us who have, but there are not enough of us around to do that inherently. That's something that you, you're so good at it. And it's a very special trait. I'm going to get choked up because you're one of my favorite people, but don't let that go any further. But I really <laughs> feel like, we need to do we need community engagement that's why networking is so important that's why do these discussions um having the support of ACR continuing to push ACR or yular everybody right this is this is a community we have to work as a community you know, there was a
1: question on the Q&A that says how do we get more people involved especially younger people what what do you suggest involved in 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 leadership positions, in volunteering, in advocacy,
4: just in everything. Speaking if you want to get involved in advocacy, first of all, AWIR definitely does that, but I'll let Gwen speak to that. But from the standpoint of the ACR, Mm -hmm. we are on the Hill at least twice a year. Every September, there's a fly-in, and not only would we like... Representatives from every state. We'd like you to bring your patients with you, because there is the uh, the senators and the uh, Congress people love to see us, but they even more love to see patients, and the patients have stories that can move people. So the, the our fly-in is open to everybody, and the I know we all get a thousand emails a day, and it's easy to miss easy to miss them, but the emails go out asking for volunteers for advocacy, and it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be in Washington. There's advocacy at mm-hmm. the local state, the local and state level also. So, I would encourage uh, people to get to know. First of all, know who your representatives are. Don't and don't just know your senator and your congressperson. Know your your know the people in your town, the people in your city. Know the people in your um, state government. They love to hear from constituents and invite them to, if you have an office, invite them to your office. And, and or all of them have local offices. You can go to them and talk to them about issues. And also you can bring with you, the, the ACR will be happy to send you talking points. You can bring those with you when you go and talk to elected representatives. They absolutely love to hear from constituents. It's really easy to do. And the next thing you know, you'll be holding fundraisers for them and, and meet and greets. And, and all kinds of things.
3: Well, so to, in fairness to, uh, sorry, I just wanted to add a couple of things, uh, even for ACR. ACR has a 101 training for the fellows, which gives them an opportunity to go to the Hill and go with a, a senior person to their uh, state uh, legislator and their federal legislators. Um, AWARE also has a training program in the uh, for young, and we do it in the fellowship And we've applied it to a few of the fellowships and we're trying to expand it to other fellowships where they do modules to teach them about um, their engagement uh, with legislation their engagement um, we're developing cultural sensitivity We, we also have a module to help them learn how to interact with pharma because they're not the enemy they're not the enemy and What I think um, ACR has done, which is very interesting, is a lot of the past probably five to six uh, or 10 years of leadership for the Government Affairs Committee have been fellows who were asked to go to Washington, did the 101 Fellowship. And where the hell do you think Blair came from? She did that. Yes. Yeah, and we got her opinion about advocacy, but that's where it came from, and, and ACR was instrumental in doing that, and, and uh, we have expanded, AWARE has expanded it uh, so that they have a little bit more training, but that's how you do it. You, you ask them, you invite them, you invite them to come, just like Dr. Desir said, you invite them to come, and that's how you start getting the young folks to to step in. and
4: And we need we absolutely need more volunteers and advocacy because especially if we're in Washington they want to they want to hear from their constituent yes. so i you know i was able to get around that by saying look i've got offices in three count in three three districts and so even though i only live in one district i have <laughs> i have patients in your district so you know you have to listen to me so but, but it's and for other ways to get involved is the acr puts out a call for volunteers every year. And if there's, something it's out if, now. <laughs> if there's something you're passionate about, if there's something you have an interest in, volunteer.
0: So Catherine asked, what can someone do to be more involved and whatnot? I'm going to give you the flip side to that. I put a, lo- a lot of things in front of a lot of people with the hope that they'll latch on and run with it. And I'm frequently told, with a line that we all use, I'm too busy. And we are. We're all very busy. But the problem with I, I'm too busy is it becomes a catchphrase that gets continues to get you out of jail so that you can rein in the things that you it's a priority issue. But you have to make if if leadership is an issue for you, then you're gonna have to make it a priority. If work-life balance is a leadership, uh, is, a, is, a, is a, an issue for you, you're going to have to make it a priority. If, you know, institutional change, you're going to have to make it a priority. Once you say, what I would say is, if you use the term, I'm too busy, realize that that has an expiration date. You can't use it forever. It's yeah. done. And the point yeah. is, if it has an expiration date, you have to be of the mindset to continually reinvent yourself. At this point in my life I have to be a caregiver for my my elderly sick parent but you know 2 years from now my story is going to change and wh- how am I going to reinvent myself towards a greater good and and again the problem is that women are the real architects of society and they you have to be mindful of that and readjust where your priorities are going to be
2: But Dr. Desir also brought up that you have to be flexible. So a woman's job does not end between nine and five. That is not how that works. Mm -hmm. So having Sunday morning meetings at 6 a.m. Central may have to be part of your leadership development (laughs) because it is something that is you're, you're asking people to reprioritize who want to be a leader. I'm good with that. I agree with you, but we've got to create an environment where that flexibility on everyone's part is also supportive flexibility.
3: I like how she snuck that in for the other day while I am yeah. up at 12.55 doing this. 6, 6 a.m. a.m. on <laughs> Sunday morning. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just said, good
1: luck. Yeah uh, <laughs> We all met at 6 a.m. Jack, except you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
2: Because we get it done. But you got, you got your meeting done
0: and you you did the important thing that you needed to do. So, (laughs) thank you for your support. (laughs) That's good. So, again, we have um, four minutes left. I need closing comments. I need you to um, address an unmet need or inspire the audience to take it to the next level. Who wants to go first?
1: I can go. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So, the one thing that I was taught by this campaign. Um, is that there is a huge unmet need that women have that hasn't been adequately addressed. And I think that women don't know that there are resources available. Mm -hmm. And I think that major societies like the ACR, even state level societies, should have a task force, should have the resources on their website to direct these women to be able to have these toolkits so that they can go ahead and forward their careers to advance and to get psychosocial support and mentorship. There was a comment on the Q&A right now that says, Jack, would you mind having some kind of mentorship for people who are in solo practice? Because they feel like they're alone and this is their community. So I think that You know, I'm so glad Dr. Desir is here because, you know, she Mm -hmm. she's like an incredible woman, incredible leader and role model. And I think that she will affect change in her leadership and she has affected change. And um, I, you know, as president elect for the ACR, I just think that this is just like I'm just in love with you. I'm just like, wow, (laughs) because you are a role model and you're somebody I look up to. And you're somebody who, you know, like, like, you know, we don't have enough women leader role models, just like at UT Southwestern here, we have black men in white coats. And this has been huge in promoting, you know, community Mm -hmm. children who are of African-American heritage to go into medicine because they see somebody in that leadership role. And so hats off to you for being a woman of color Mm -hmm. and for being a
3: leader. So yes, yes, yes. Yes. And when she comes and when she comes to us during her presidency and needs our help, we are going to be there for her. We are going when she asks, I need volunteers for this. I need blah, blah, blah. We're going to use our networks to help make her shine, keep her shine. And then we're going to when she gets off of that Presidency, we're going to get her on room now and aware, and then she's going to help continue this craziness with us.
2: on coach coach.
4: <laughs> no, I, I want to say a, a word about the, the the workforce and how we can inspire it. Um, my partner and I volunteer with the, the Yale medical students at a uh, clinic. Mm in a free clinic and they're not, they're just, they're medical students. There are nursing students. There are public health students who come and do blood pressure screening and glucose screening. But I watched her inspire a young woman to, um, to have an interest in rheumatology. By- <sighs> yes. and as we interact more with young people, we can, you know, if you can see someone doing it, you can be it. And uh, that was inspirational to me, just watching her pique this young woman's interest and mm-hmm. in, 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 in training other rheumatologists. So I would, in closing, I would say, remember the workforce.
2: Yes. So my, mine is workforce related too. I think a lot of what we've heard from this campaign are women and men actually, who are looking for part-time positions, or even the concept of job sharing. I think we need to be a little bit more transparent about what that looks like, what that could be, Um, educational tools, as Kat had said, to um, really kind of enhance that. I've been fortunate. I've had a part-time position since I had my baby, and I hadn't anticipated it because I like to be a go-getter, but it doesn't mean I'm any less of a go-getter. But I'm able to, to share that with my family as well. And um, having that ability has really opened doors for me. And so having that opportunity for other people is going to only improve and enhance our workforce. Um, and Dr. Melton, I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. But that is my takeaway.
3: Yes. So we, I have some thoughts on the flexibility of shared uh, jobs to help with. Shortage and also Dr. Kush and I have had lots of experience with using advanced practitioners and where they can be put near to help us out. Um, I'm looking at this Tuesday night uh, rheumatology, uh, revolutionary advances in therapy. That means we are done. I want to yeah, and, I see, and, I, and I, I see three men's names on there. What the devil? <laughs> I
0: want to thank our panel for a great discussion and those of you who've had um, enough of too many women for the month of April. We're going to move into, I'm only kidding. We're going to move into (laughs) um, May. um, and We're going to, in the month of May, we're going to be featuring a lot of the content that was had in the uh, Room Now Live meeting. And we're going to start with this in a rehash session on rheumatoid arthritis um, next Tuesday night, same time, same place, same invite. Dr. Kevin Dean on early uh, RA, uh, Stanley Cohen on Jack inhibitors, and Dr. Michael Brenner, on the pathogenesis of RA, especially fibroblasts and stromal cells. So we'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you, everyone. Great discussion. Oh,
3: thank you. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.